All right, we are continuing our study together in our book, the, From the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven, uh, a book on the subject of the biblical covenants. And we are in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, uh, our author, uh, Mr. Williamson, is talking about how the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled under the new covenant. Now, we have said the Abrahamic covenant is the foundation of the two great covenants in the scripture, the old covenant and the new covenant. All right. And so the old covenant was made with the physical seed or the physical descendants of Abraham. And under that covenant, all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant were physically fulfilled. Abraham had a seed, right? His name was Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had the 12 sons. And of course, they were the progenitors of the entire nation of Israel. So Abraham was given the seed. Okay, the promise of the seed was fulfilled. And uh, of course, he also became the father of many nations, which is part of the promise of the seed. And then we saw that the promise of the land was fulfilled. Um, in the book of Joshua, chapter 21 and verse, verse 43, it says, And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he swore to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And then, of course, Abraham had the blessing. Uh, he was blessed with salvation, with a wife, with health, with power, with children. And, of course, not only was he blessed, but through him, blessing was given uh, to others. Uh, Israel had protection in Egypt, deliverance from slavery. They were sustained in the wilderness with the manna and the water. They had military victories. They had material prosperity. And the greatest of all blessings that came through Abraham as they were given the scriptures. And so uh, anyway, we see then that under the old covenant, the promise of the seed, the land, and the blessing that Abraham would be blessed and be a blessing was uh, completely fulfilled. However, what we see and we looked at last time is that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when Jesus was going to be born, said that the birth of Jesus was going to be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And he said in Luke 1, verses 68 to 73, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So Zacharias, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that the birth of Jesus Christ and the things that were going to come out around that were the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. And so we then began to look at how the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled a second time in an even greater way under the new covenant. And so last time we talked about the fact that uh, the promise of Abraham of the seed was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and his people that descended from him via the new birth. And so Abraham had Jesus, Jesus had us. We were born again of Jesus Christ. And so it says in Galatians 3.29, it says, And if you be Christ's, 
Then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that's why the church is the new Israel. We are all descendants of Christ, who is a descendant of Abraham. That makes us all children of Abraham. If we're children of Abraham, what does that make us? It makes us Jews. It makes us the Israel of God. And so the church then became uh, Israel uh, in a, in a larger and greater way than physical Israel ever, ever was. So Abraham's seed are those who share Abraham's circumcised heart and who share Abraham's faith, irrespective of their genetic background. So every regenerate believer is a child of Abraham. And it is those who receive the seed of Abraham, namely Jesus Christ, who are the seed of Abraham, namely his true children. And what happened to the genetic children of Abraham? The Bible tells us that if they were in unbelief, they were broken off in Romans chapter 11. And so those who are the genetic descendants of Abraham, uh, the modern day Jews who do not believe in Jesus Christ, have been cut off out of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and are no longer considered the people of God. Now they can become the people of God again. They can be grafted in again if they will repent and believe in Jesus as Messiah. But if they don't, then they're not the people of God and they have no covenant relationship with God. So the church then has become the new Israel. And Jesus, you remember, said to the Jews that he would take away from them the kingdom and give it to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And so genetic Israel lost the covenant and kingdom, and it was given to largely the Gentiles. And there's only a small remnant of Jews within the church today, and, there, and there's only ever been a small remnant. Uh, and the vast majority of the church has been made up of Gentiles. Well, that uh, summarizes what we covered last time. Now today, we wanna to talk about how the promise of the land is fulfilled under the new covenant. And uh, today among dispensationalists especially, there's this great hysteria over the physical land of Israel, uh, over in the Middle East, as though that's still the promised land, and as though we need to uh, defend that piece of ground because um, that's the piece of ground God promised to his people. Now, it was the piece of ground that God promised to his people, and he gave it to them under the Abrahamic covenant, didn't he? Uh, when Joshua invaded the land, it says in the book of Joshua that God gave uh, the Israelites all the land that he promised to Abraham. So they did get it all. But there was a problem. And the problem is um, our, our memory verse today, Genesis 17, 8. Okay, listen to Genesis 17, 8. God says to Abraham, and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, now here it is, pay attention, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, ultimately, the land that was promised to Abraham cannot be the physical land of modern day Israel. And the reason why it cannot be is because 
the land that God promised to Abraham was promised as an everlasting possession. They would never lose it. Once they had it, it was theirs. It was a done deal. It was theirs for eternity. Now, there are several problems with that. Problem number one is that Israel did lose possession of the land. It wasn't their everlasting possession. When they took it under Joshua, it wasn't very long before they lost it under the book of Judges. And if you remember the book of Judges, reading it, many times Israel became slaves in the land and the land was completely taken over by the bad guys, the Philistines or the Amorites or whoever it happened to be on that occasion. So they lost the land and, and they, they didn't hold it in their grasp. And then, of course, uh, David and Solomon came along and they got the land back and it was theirs, lock, stock and barrel. And then, of course, we know that um, they uh, lost the land again at the captivity, right? Where uh, uh, the Assyrians came and took away the northern ten tribes and Nebuchadnezzar came, the Babylonians, and took away the southern two tribes and they lost the land for 70 years, didn't have it. And so here they got it, they lost it, they got it, they lost it. That doesn't sound like an everlasting possession to me, okay? And then, of course, uh, when they came back from the captivity, they never really had it. They might have controlled it for a little while under the Maccabees, okay? But by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews don't own the land anymore, the Romans own it, right? And then the Romans kicked the Jews out of the land in 70 AD. And um, uh, when Titus and the Roman legions came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and, and booted them out of the land, and they weren't in the land for, you know, uh, another, what, 14, 1500 years. I mean, in 1948 uh, is when they finally supposedly got the land back. And uh, so the point is, is that the land of Canaan has hardly been an everlasting possession. And then the final problem is, is that what's going to happen to the land of Canaan in the end? Well, it's going to get burned up, right? What's going to happen to this world? It's going to be dissolved in a fervent heat. And the earth and all the works therein are going to be burned up. So that little piece of dirt over there in the Middle East cannot be altogether what God promised. There has to be something more than that that is truly an everlasting possession. And that's the point that the author of the book of Hebrews is making in our new memory verse. What does it say? But now they desire a better country. Better than what? Better than Palestine. Better than all the land of Canaan. And so Abraham understood that that land over there was just a picture of the real land, which was going to be the heavenly land. Because Abraham knew that if he didn't lose the land, the land was going to lose him because what was going to happen to Abraham? He's going to die, right? And he wouldn't have the land for an everlasting possession. I mean, when you have eternal life, you don't lose it, right? It goes with you. The land didn't go with Abraham. And so he knew it was just a foreshadowing of the real land. And so um, 
What we find as we read the New Testament is that while the promise of the geographical barriers of the land were fulfilled under Joshua, um, that uh, the land really is more than Palestine. The land is the new heavens and the new earth. Now let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to see that. The book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we preached through this not too long ago in our morning services. And uh, you can see in Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 13, speaking of Abraham and Sarah, and um, it says, Hebrews 11, 13, these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so the city he's prepared for them is the new Jerusalem. And the land that he has prepared for them is the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the city and that's the land that's going to be the true everlasting possession that is the ultimate fulfillment under the new covenant of the promise given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the prophecies, when Israel was in captivity, the prophecies regarding Israel's return to the land uh, obviously included an environment that could never be true of the land of Palestine. Because you see God promising uh, when Israel was in captivity in Babylon, right? And uh, Ezekiel and... and, um, Jeremiah were prophesying Isaiah about the, um, uh, the land that they were going to go back to and the blessing that was going to be on it. Uh, they were describing things like the lion was going to lay down with a lamb and a child would put his hand on the adder's hole and it wouldn't bite him and all of those types of promises. And obviously, the land that God was speaking to them of through Jeremiah and Isaiah and the other prophets was something far more than just the land of Palestine. So what we want to do is look at a number of passages together. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 24, and we're just going to survey through these. Not going to spend a lot of time on them, but look in in Jeremiah chapter 24. Um, Now remember the historical context. Where is Israel when Jeremiah is prophesying? Well, the answer is they're not in Palestine. They are in Babylon. They're 600 miles to the east in what is in, in, in modern day Iraq. Okay, that's where they're at. That's where Babylon was. <clears throat> and so in Jeremiah 24, verses 6 and 7, <clears throat> it says, God speaking here, For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land. And I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. 
And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Now this phrase, they shall be my people and I will be their God, what does that remind you of? Abrahamic covenant, right? That's almost a direct quote right out of the Abrahamic covenant that God promised to his people in Genesis 17. And so what he says here is that I will bring them into the land. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Now, let me ask you a question. Were they plucked up? In 70 AD, they were plucked up big time. In fact, they were broken off. They were plucked up and broken off from the covenant. So obviously, he's speaking here of a time in the future. And you'll notice uh, the new covenant promises that are here. Verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And what he's really saying here is I'm going to totally regenerate these people. And I'm going to have them as my regenerate people who I will be their God and they will be my people. And never again will they ever be plucked up after they've been planted in the land. So this is something more than just the return from the captivity. This is looking past that to the day when all those who bear the name of God are saved. You won't have this mixed multitude like you had in Old Covenant Israel where some were saved and some weren't. And that's why the nation was always such a mess because about 90% of them weren't converted and yet they were in the covenant community and there was only a remnant that was saved. Well, now all the people are going to be saved. And of course, that's the characteristic of the new covenant, right? We all know the Lord from the least of us to the greatest of us. And, um, and God is our God and, and he's put his law in our hearts. So um, this is, 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 you know, looking past uh, the land of, of Canaan to um, that, that new heavens and new earth. We need to move quickly. Um, Amos uh, chapter 9 and verse 13. Amos, one of the minor prophets, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. The book of Amos. Amos chapter 9, verse 13. God says, Amos 9.13, everybody find it? Minor prophets. Okay. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountain shall drop with sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon the land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of the land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. So once again here, he's talking about the fact that Israel is going to have this phenomenal agricultural blessing. To the point that um, the plowman is going to overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that sow a seed. The mountains will drop with sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. And, and what this is, is this is a metaphorical description of phenomenal 
productivity. And he says regarding his people, I'm going to plant them in the land and they'll no more be pulled up out of the land. And so this is, this is the um, everlasting possession uh, that's being spoken of here. All right. Now let's go to Isaiah. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time in Isaiah because he's quite full. We'll start out at chapter 2. And we're going to look at four passages in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. We'll start out at verse 1. Isaiah 2, beginning at verse 1, all right? The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days, notice the time period, that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So what Isaiah is doing is he's looking beyond the return back to the land. Did Israel ever beat her swords into plowshares? Never did. Not to this day. And by the way, this verse, uh, verse 4 is the one that's on the United Nations building. And you know why it's never going to be realized by the United Nations? Because they don't acknowledge the one the only one who can bring it to pass, and that's the Prince of Peace. And so they're futilely trying to bring it to pass through uh, means other than through Jesus Christ. So the point is, is that there's going to come this time of universal peace when war is absolutely going to cease, and nations are not going to lift up sword against nation anymore, and all the instruments of the war are going to be completely dismantled. And so this is... um, you know, a a wonderful foreshadowing of the peace that we're going to have in the new heavens and new earth. Now notice Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. Isaiah chapter 11. Describing further the land of Israel. Uh, supposedly, that that the children of Israel are going to return to. He says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, and the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's din." They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, once again, Isaiah is prophesying, and he's prophesying about Israel's return to Palestine, but obviously he's talking about more than that. He's talking about a degree of blessing that involves a complete removal of the curse. And that hasn't happened in Palestine and it never will happen until Christ comes back 
and inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. So as, as, as these prophets are setting before Israel the land, the land, the land, what land are they setting forth? It isn't Palestine. It's really the new heavens and the new earth. Now turn to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62, we'll start out at verse 1 to verse 4, Isaiah 62, 1 to 4. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all the kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Now here's our verse, verse 4. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. Beulah means beautiful, by the way. Um, For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. Now, Once again, we see things described of the land in terms of the people who occupy it and in terms of the blessings that rest upon it that cannot possibly be true of Canaan. It says, thy land shall not anymore be termed desolate. Well, the land became desolate after 70 AD. Um, And so clearly, uh, it will be phenomenally desolate um, when the earth and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. And um, so uh, the land here is obviously something more. Now the final verse before we turn to the New Testament is in Isaiah 66. And here Isaiah just comes right out and says it. All right? Isaiah 66. And verse 22. We'll start out at verse 18. Isaiah 66, verse 18. It says, For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them into the nations to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, to draw the bow, to two bold Javan, the isles far off, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the Gentiles. Okay, speaking of the evangelism, it's going to take place among the Gentiles. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations, upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beats, beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. So God is gathering in the Gentiles, all right? And he's going to take us, you and me, us Gentiles, for priests and Levites. Imagine that, okay? Now here it is, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, 
so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one noon moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So Isaiah comes out and he says, look, this is the land. It's the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, in that land, uh, everyone is going to worship the Lord. And then those that are in hell uh, will be there. And we will be in heaven and we'll be able to see them in hell. You remember the story of, of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus and Abraham could look across, across that gulf and, and see the rich man. And, and yet no one could cross over. And so this is what's being spoken of here uh, in this passage. Now, let's turn, please, to 2 Peter chapter 3. The book of 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, we see this, these themes taken up uh, in the New Testament um, of this fulfillment of this promise really being the, the new heavens and the new earth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> He talks about the flood uh, in verse 6, 2 Peter 3, 6. He says, The world whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. So there was the the world that God made uh, in the beginning, and it got flooded. Genesis 6, right? Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, that's the post-Diluvian world, the world after the flood, That's the one we're living on right now, the world after the flood. Not a different world uh, geographically, but a changed world uh, dramatically. Okay, verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the reason why God's delaying judgment is because he's saving his elect. All right? Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Um, <clears throat> The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy manner of life and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Now, when you see what's going to happen, you recognize that Canaan cannot be the land of everlasting promise because it's going to be burned up and dissolved. What's next? Verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And so this is the better country that Abraham desired. And this is the country he looked forward to. This is the country that all the prophets spoke of, even though they had the land of Palestine. uh, They spoke of of, of a better country than Palestine ever was or ever could have been, and of conditions there that were better than Israel ever experienced in Palestine, even at the height of her glory when she did possess it under Solomon. 
And so this then is, is the, the transformation uh, or the fulfillment, I should say, of the Abrahamic covenant under the new covenant. Now, turn please to the last passage and we'll, we'll conclude here. Revelation 21. So after Jesus returns um, in chapter 20, 19 and 20, and there is um, the great white throne judgment, then in chapter 21 of Revelation it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the Jerusalem that Isaiah described. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be there any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And this is what Isaiah was talking about in chapter 11 when he talked about the lion would lie down with a lamb, and the child could put his hand on, on the poisonous ass's hole, and he would not kill or destroy in all my holy mountain, this is the holy mountain that he's speaking of. Verse 5, And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said, Right, for these words are true and faithful. It's done. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God. He shall be my son. But the fearful and the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. And he talked to me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now notice verse 10. And he carried me away in spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so the real Jerusalem and the real Mount Zion and the real land of promise is what is described here in Revelation 21. This is our true home. This is the true, final, ultimate fulfillment of the promise of the land in the Abrahamic covenant. And people, this is the reason why we do not set our hearts on this world. This is the reason why we're strangers and pilgrims and sojourners here in this world because this is not the land. Remember how Abraham was a stranger and a sojourner all of his life in the land of Canaan? Because why? That really wasn't the land was just a foreshadowing of the land. And so we live as strangers and pilgrims and sojourners in this world now. Why? Because this really isn't the land either. And so we, like Abraham, look for a city whose builder and maker is God. And so our eye is focused on heaven, not on this present world. And therefore, we recognize America is not ultimately the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is on earth in terms of his saved people. But the actual completion and fulfillment of the kingdom is going to be when we have the land and we are under the king and all of our enemies are completely defeated and all death and pain and sorrow is completely gone. So those who when Abraham didn't set his heart on Canaan, and when we don't set our heart on this world, and we with Abraham desire a better country that is a heavenly, what is God's attitude towards us? He's not ashamed to be called our God. 
And that's why the Bible says, set your affection on things above and not on things of the earth. Because this earth is all destined to be burnt up. It's not the promised land. And that's why any effort to create utopias here never work. Because there's only one utopia and that's the new heavens and the new earth. So my point to you in closing is simply this. You're all excited about going to heaven and being there. Heaven is the new heavens and the new earth. And the only way you get it is by being a participant in the Abrahamic covenant because the promise is to Abraham and his seed. And if you're not his seed, then you don't get the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why you have to be Abraham's seed if you're going to participate in Abraham's promise. And that's why when it says that he will make the new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and I'm a Gentile, how do I get into that covenant? Through faith in Jesus Christ, through being born of Christ. If I'm Christ's, then am I Abraham's seed and I'm heirs according to the promise. Not only the promise of being a child of God, but also the promise of having the land of God as ours. So the reason why you have a heaven is because God made promises to Abraham. And that's why the Abrahamic covenant is so foundational to all the blessings of salvation we ever hope to have. Do you hope to be a child of God? Do you hope to dwell in the heaven of God? Do you hope to have blessings from God? It all comes through Abraham, people. That's why he is the father of the faith and the father of the faithful. So recognize the importance of Abraham. This guy stands at the very top of the covenantal uh, structure out of which all the blessings flow, including the gift of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying Abraham's more important than Christ, but I am saying that humanly speaking, he is the greatest of the great and everything flows out of him. So praise the Lord for our father Abraham and for the God who gave the promises to our father Abraham when he didn't deserve them. Who was he? Who was Abraham? He was a pagan in Ur of the Chaldees. And God in his sovereign electing love reached down and plucked him and said, through you, I'm going to give all the blessings of redemption to my people. Isn't that amazing? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our father Abraham and for the gifts you gave to him and through him to us. Lord, we're so thankful that we have the promise of the seed, Jesus the promise of the land, the new heavens and the new earth, and as we shall see, the promise of blessing, which is salvation. What greater blessing could there be than that? And Lord, we pass that blessing on to others through evangelism. And now, Father, we pray that you would bless uh, our proclamation of the gospel. May it accomplish that whereunto you have sent it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.